and prepare us to study God's Word, I, w- I want you to think about something with me. As long as I can remember, I've enjoyed reading history. You don't have to enjoy reading history. Not, if you don't, saying that's something's wrong with you. Uh, though I could argue for that. But, but the way this works is when, when the house is quiet, which doesn't occur a lot now that we have three little boys, and the snow is falling, and the fire is blazing. I mean, you add these filters, and it's like down to a 15-minute window, right? But it happens. And when that's the case, I love to put my feet up and read good history. Love to do that. Uh, it transports my mind to years gone by. I find reading history to be both at once restful and intellectually stimulating. And I think that one of the primary reasons why um, is well captured by Ecclesiastes 1.9, where the preacher says this, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. Conclusion, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. But believe it or not, you can read about the Battle of Carthage or the exploits of Sir Francis Drake and learn things that are exceedingly relevant for our own time. You can't. And if you're in high school and you're hating those things, trust me, there's benefit there. History reveals, among other things, how people work, what, what motivates us, what, what causes us to stumble, how we, how we respond to suffering. So we may have replaced aqueducts with aquafina or carrier pigeons with cell phones But I would argue that the essence of who we are and what makes us tick as people hasn't changed. And thus, history is helpful. You can learn a lot of wisdom from history. But, please hear this, the fact that history repeats itself, you can learn from the past, does not mean that history is cyclical. That it's caught in this this endless loop. Think of Eastern religions of of reincarnation. It's just repeating, 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 and never going anywhere. Okay, that's not true. One of the central tenets of the Bible, one of the fundamental pillars in the Christian worldview, which is not just a religious option, by the way, but revealed truth, is that history has a telos, it has a goal, it has a a finish line. It's heading somewhere even as it repeats itself. We're not stuck on a merry-go-round. We're part of a story. And it's got a beginning and a middle and an end. It's following God's eternal purpose. And that purpose, friend, what God's, what God's up to in the world, where all of history is going, is what Paul sets out in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, before he talks about the Ephesians, this is so important, he talks about God. What God's doing. The story God's writing. I mean, think about this. Paul could have just said, hey Ephesians, I'm an apostle translation. I'm a smarter guy than you are. So, I want you to do this. I want you to not do that. It will be well with you. Love, Paul. 
He could have done that. He could have just brought the hammer and told them what to do. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He wants them to recognize how their little story is a part of God's big story. He says, guys, let me tell you what God's doing in the world. And how you can get on board with God's agenda. Namely, hear this, to unite all things in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? That, what I just said, that is the goal of history. That's the end. That's God's agenda. Reconciliation, restoration, unification in Christ. Christ is the end. Christ is the goal. And here's what that means for you and me. That means to be united to Christ by faith is to be caught up in the great end of all things. Say that again. If you've been united to Christ by faith, friend, you're not on a merry-go-round of crazy life circumstances. You have been caught up in the great end of all things. And that reality, union in Christ is the great end of all things. That is the high point of this really long sentence at the very beginning of Ephesians. So I told you a couple weeks ago that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is one sentence in the original language. That's a long sentence. But trust me, it's not an example of bad English with all these random phrases and commas and he's just wandering from one thing to another. You know, it's like everything your English teacher in school told you never to do. You know, comma, phrase, comma, phrase. No. It may look like that, but there's a topic sentence in this sentence. There's a main point here. There's a high point In Ephesians 1. And it's found in verse 10. And instead of just skipping right there, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 7. We're going to focus on verses 7 through 10. Give our attention to the great end of all things. Paul says, verse 7, In Him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite All things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. He should stop there. To be united to Christ is to be caught up in the great end of all things. It's where history is headed. It's what God is what God is up to in the world. And in the verses that I read, Apostle Paul tells us what union with Christ provides. What union with Christ requires and what union with Christ guarantees. And as we move through each of these different ways of looking at union with Christ, what we're going to see is how our little stories are part of God's big story. Point number one, union with Christ provides a costly redemption. Costly redemption. Look, look right at verse 7. Very first thing Paul says. He wastes no time. In him, in Christ, we have 
redemption. Now, that, that's not a word that I hear a lot. You know, unless somebody's talking about coupons or Best Buy rebates. I, we don't use that word a lot. But in the Bible, redemption is an act of God whereby he delivers or rescues or ransoms someone from captivity or slavery. Okay? The, the essential idea is God buying someone back from slavery. And the example that's found over and over again and referenced over and over again in the Old Testament is the Exodus, where God ransomed, God redeemed his people, delivered his people from slavery in the land of Egypt. So we read in Deuteronomy 7, God says, It was not because you were more in number, Israel, than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And in the Bible, that act of physical redemption where God rescued his people, he redeemed his people from physical slavery in the land of Egypt, that becomes a pattern, an illustration, a type, if you would, of the ultimately greater spiritual redemption, spiritual rescue, spiritual deliverance, that God would work as sending his son to deliver us from the master of sin and guilt. And make no mistake about it, friends. Spiritual redemption for you and me is not optional. It's not optional. In the sense that the reason God offers us redemption is that we desperately need redemption. Redemption isn't this this religious experience for people who are really spiritual, okay? It is a human necessity. Human necessity. Why? Because we are born not just desiring what is wrong or inclined to what is wrong. We are enslaved to doing what is wrong. To use the Bible's words, we're enslaved to sin. Sin isn't just something that we do when we make a mistake. You know, oops. No. No, sin is what we are enslaved to. It's our master, our Lord. It it rules over us. And the most insane thing about that is that the Bible says our slavery is voluntary. I mean, this this is what's so insane about it. We want to be ruled by sin. We want sin. Unless you think I'm crazy, I'm just giving people a bad rap and they're better off than I think they are. Just think about the last time you knew in your head exactly what you were supposed to do. And every single desire on the inside said, I'm not doing that. I want to do this. I mean, we can all relate to that. I, I see it in my, my one-year-old. I want to throw that cherry out. I don't care. I'm going to throw it. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we do it till our dying day. You know, I, th- I think I've shared this illustration before. Um, how many of you have seen the movie Open Season? Some of you? Yes. Okay, maybe I've shared this with the, the students here, but, but there's this great scene where Boog the Bear, I think that's how you say his name, um, but he breaks in his convenience store and he's standing in front of a massive pile of chocolate bars. And, and he says this. He says this. He looks at the pile. I can't do his voice very well, but he, 
He says, the woohoo bar. She's my lady. Smooth and creamy. So bad, I shouldn't. But I will. And proceeds to eat the entire, the entire pile of woohoo bars. And I, I remember hearing that and thinking, that's it. Right? That's me. We're not neutral. Boog didn't stand in front of the pile of bars and go, well, you know, on the one hand, there's the calorie counts. On the other hand, I shouldn't even be in this convenience store. I mean, it, no, he wasn't this objective neutral party. He had strong desires to do what was wrong. And that's like us. We don't just want what is wrong. We delight in what is wrong. We're enslaved to what is wrong. That, that's not crazy fundamentalist pastors exaggerating stuff to make you feel bad about yourself. That's reality. For me too. So what what has Jesus done for us? Paul says. Verse 7. He has redeemed us. He's redeemed us. He's paid the price that was necessary. For us to be released from slavery to our old master. Sin and guilt. And set free to serve a new master. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means becoming a Christian. Isn't about exchanging just false beliefs about God, for true beliefs about God. It's about being rescued from spiritual slavery. Four years ago, a business insider ran an article that I found very interesting on the most expensive ransoms ever paid to save someone who had been kidnapped. And the award for the most expensive ransom went to, sorry, Brother Damien, Argentinian grain traders, Jorge and Juan Bourne, who were, quote, kidnapped by a left-wing terrorist group, and after nine months of captivity, they were freed, but get this, in exchange for an inflation-adjusted payment of $293 million. They were freed in exchange for $293 million. Why do I bring that up? Well, it's because redemption is always costly. Always. Okay, a price must be paid. In their case, it was an unspeakable sum of money, right? $293 million. And Paul says from a spiritual standpoint, we're no different. Our spiritual redemption from the, the master of sin and guilt requires that a price must be paid. And maybe you hear me say that and you think, well, come on, Matthew. Why, why can't God just forgive and move on? I mean, I do that all the time for people. I just forgive them and move on. No, you don't. You don't. It doesn't work that way. Okay, forgiveness never works that way. It, it always costs something. Think about it. If I sin against you, you have one of two choices. All right? Either you can exact payment from me, causing me to suffer in the way I caused you to suffer, or you can choose to bear the pain of what I did to you and forgive me. Either way... <laughs> One of us has to absorb the cost of my sin. And folks, our relationship with God is no different. He can't just forgive. A price has to be paid. Justice demands it. You don't rebel against the Lord of the universe and get away with it. And the payment necessary 
to satisfy God's justice could not be more costly. It's death. Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, here's, here's what the law promised. You sin, you die. Here's what the gospel says. You sin, Christ dies. That's the gospel. The law says, you sin, you die. The gospel says, you sin, Christ dies. He dies so that you don't have to die. And through his death, he pays your ransom. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's the cost, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And church, I want you to realize that no sum of money in the entire world compares to the worth of the life of God. And it was his life, that the life of, of his very own son, that God offered, God paid, to set you free. I mean, think of it this way. The payment God demands from you is the payment God makes for you. That's the gospel. What he demands from you, he pays for you. And, and if you're a Christian, that means... You've been united to Christ by faith. He's paid for your ransom. He's provided a a costly redemption. So, what does all this have to do with this week? Two things. Application one. Christian, don't despise the cost of your ransom. Don't do it. If you intentionally choose to sin, if you persist in doing what you want to do instead of what God says you must do, then you are mocking Christ. I don't, I don't know what sin you're holding on to. Okay? It could be sexual lust. It could be anger. It could be bitterness. It could be pride. Whatever it is, know this. When you choose to intentionally sin, you are spurning and rejecting the one who paid an infinite price to deliver you from that very sin. He ransomed you. He redeemed you. Stop wandering back to your old master. You know, it, it would have been insane for Jorge and Juan born to get redeemed. Then the next day, walk back into that jungle. Say, hey guys, up we're back insane to do that i mean nobody in the right mind would walk back to their captor having just been redeemed from such a captor that is what we do when we knowingly choose to sin we're going back it's it's crazy Despise the cost of your ransom. Sin is not your master, Christian. Jesus is. Live that way. Okay, and secondly, second application. 
don't try to pay yourself what Jesus has already paid for you. Okay? Notice what Paul says. You've been ransomed. Your trespasses have been forgiven through the blood of Christ according to what? According to the riches of his grace. Okay, note that well. It's not your riches that saved you, friend. It's the riches of Christ that secured your redemption. So take care that as you seek to follow him and do good works, you are not thinking in your mind that somehow you can help with the bill or pay him back for what he already paid for you. You can't. He loves you. It was his joy to redeem you. And, and by the way, having redeemed you, he's not impoverished as a result. He didn't empty his bank account. Oh, man, I've got to spend another million years building that back up. No, okay? The abundance of the riches of God's grace is infinitely greater than the debt of your sin. Always. Union with Christ provides a costly redemption. Praise God for that. Here's the second thing it provides provides and it requires the grace of revelation. Okay, it provides a costly redemption. It requires the grace of revelation. Look back at, at verse 7. And we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Notice, making known to us revelation. The mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Have you ever received a gift that was so lavish, it just left you speechless? Has that ever happened to anybody? Go ahead, don't don't be bashful. Just put your hands up. Yeah, and I'm not talking like trick question, spiritually we all have. Okay, we'll get there. But they're like a material gift. Yeah. Well, you know, I have several examples. Um, there was one early in our marriage where uh, we needed a place to live. We wanted to buy a condo. We didn't have the money. And we borrowed a very large sum of money from a family member uh, to put a down payment on this condo. And for a couple of years, we were trying to faithfully pay a little bit back, a little bit back. And then one night, this family member uh, just told me, hey, you know that loan? It's a gift. Just keep it. I remember driving home that night thinking, did that just happen? (laughs) I mean, we're not talking a couple hundred bucks, okay? A lot of money. And it was overwhelming. And it's the kind of gift that's so lavish that, you know, it's not until you're like doing your budget the next month and the next month and the next month you realize, oh my word. That was an amazing gift. Well, friends, God, God the Father has done something lavish for you if you're a Christian. He's given you all wisdom and insight. What does that mean? Well, it means in order for you to experience and know the redemption that he's provided for you in Christ. God first had to do something inside your heart and mind whereby you could perceive in the spiritual realm all that God had done for you in Jesus. You cannot experience his redemption, friend, apart from the grace 
of revelation. God must make known to you, verse 9, the mystery of his will. So, So think about this. Why is it that the gospel made all the sense in the world to you? Maybe right now, the gospel makes all the sense in the world to you, but it's a religious fairy tale for your extended family. Okay, why is that? Why is it that, that you're able to understand things about God and His activity in the world that are just utter nonsense to the people that live around you? Why is that? Well, well brother and sister, it's not because you have some sort of an innate spiritual sense. It's because God has lavished wisdom and understanding and knowledge on you. He's lavished that on you. He's given you that as a gift. What what to so many is is hidden mystery, namely what Jesus has done to redeem us, is crystal clear to you. And the reason is that God's given you an ability to understand. God does that. Spiritual wisdom and insight don't come from us. They come from God. We, We have no innate ability to figure out why we exist or the ultimate purpose for our life, let alone know what is necessary in order to be made right with God. All of those things have to be revealed to us. Christ could have done everything necessary to purchase your redemption. But unless he opened your eyes spiritually to realize that, so you could trust him, you would never experience it. You would never know the good of it. If you're going to be redeemed, then you have to know the gift of revelation. And praise God that he delights to give that kind of wisdom and insight. Praise God for that. And here's why this is so encouraging. There are many people that I know, a lot of you, have been praying God would save. Kids, family members, friends, parents. And it gets hard to wait. It is hard to watch somebody suffer because they have not experienced and known the redemption in Christ Jesus. So what do we do with that? Where do we go with that pain? Where do we go with that hurt? Well, friend, we pray. We pray. Okay, the single most helpful thing you can do to enable somebody else to follow Christ is pray. You pray, Ephesians 1.17, that the Father would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of their heart enlightened that they might Know the hope to which He has called them. You pray for that. that. That's what your family needs. That's what your children need. That's what your friend needs. And take heart, friend, as you are praying for them, as you are saying, God, would you lavish the grace of wisdom and knowledge and revelation of what Jesus has done on that person, whether they're a little person or a big person? Know this, okay? God delights to do that. He delights to do that. What, what does He say? He makes known, verse 9, to us the mystery of his will, the truth of the gospel, according to his purpose. When you pray for that, you know what you're doing? You're getting on a train called the eternal purpose of God. 
mean, that's amazing. You're, you're, not, you're not twisting God's arm. Well, I wasn't, but, you know, maybe I will. They won't shut up. No, no, you're aligning yourself with God's eternal purpose. Translation, he's in the business of making known Jesus. And when you pray, you are getting on board with that. Union with Christ provides redemption. It requires revelation. And lastly, and we're going to linger here a bit, union with Christ culminates in cosmic reconciliation. Cosmic reconciliation. I want you to remember something I said at the very beginning. Okay, I said history has a telos. It has an end. It has a goal. It's, it's going somewhere. It's not just this endless loop, endless cycle. So, so people change. Civilizations change. You change. I change. Churches change. God's purpose remains. We've got to get that. There's a great end to all things, which Paul says, look at verse 9, is this. This purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is the thesis statement of the entire book of Ephesians. Verse 10. What is God up to in the world? What is God's eternal plan for history? Where is all this craziness, from our perspective, going? It is going to all things being united in Christ. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the destination, if you would. God doesn't have a generic purpose for all things. God has a Christ-centered purpose for all things. And the essence of His will For creation, the centerpiece of his purpose, friend. For all that you are, all that you have, your your time, your abilities, your money, your house, your car, your intellect, all around you and all that you have. There's a purpose for all that, and it's not a mystery. You don't figure out your purpose in life by asking what color is your parachute. It's been set forth in Christ. That means it's not hidden. It's set forth. And in other words, God has not given you and I the freedom to create our own purpose for life. To forge our own destiny. God has decreed the ultimate destiny of mankind. Okay, you, you can try to invent your own purpose, but you know what? You're going to be swimming upstream and you're not going to do as well as the salmon do. Because you are resisting the eternal decree of God. Namely, His purpose to unite all things in Christ. God has revealed His purpose for all that you are and all that you have in Jesus. And let me qualify something here. Okay, I have had a lot of conversations where people will say, Matthew, you know, I say, how can I pray for you? Well, just pray I would know God's will for my life. And when I hear that, I'm delighted to pray for that. Because you know what that usually means? That person's facing a decision, job, college, marriage, something. And they want to know, Lord, what do you want me to do? Guess what? That's a biblical prayer. God, God promises that he leads sinner in the way, Psalm 25, and guides the humble in what is right. You want to pray that? I'm going to pray that. God's going to answer those prayers. But there's a sense, and we forget this, to our peril, 
that God's will for our life is not something we find at the end of a long prayer time. It's been set forth in Christ. Set forth, put on display, held up for all to see. Okay, so here's what we have to remember. If you want to know God's will for your life, your family, the church, all of creation, then look no further than the unifying work God is doing of cosmic reconciliation in Jesus and throw your life into that. Get behind that. Okay, that that means that the purpose of God for your life and for our church is not a mystery waiting to be discovered, primarily. It's a mission waiting to be embraced. It's God's mission, an eternal mission, a a triumphant mission, a guaranteed mission to unite all things in Christ. And the book of Ephesians, friends, more than anything else, is this massive summons and trumpet call from God. Oh, church, would you devote yourself to what I am supremely devoted to, namely to seeing all things united in Jesus and living that way? It's not a mystery. Set forth in Christ. And a sinister source of all, all dislocation, all, all disharmony in the created universe, the reason for things like divorce and genocide and racism and selfishness and arrogance and sickness, everything that causes us with Scripture to cry out, Lord, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, okay? All of that is the result of what? Alienation from Christ. And it's precisely that alienation, that that separation that God has purposed to overcome through the gospel. Because the gospel, more than anything else, is a work of reconciliation of, of us to God through Jesus and us to one another through Jesus. And that means that the mission of the church, more than anything else, is a ministry of reconciliation. To join God in seeing all men and women from every tribe and tongue reconciled, united to Him through Christ, and then in Christ, reconciled and united to one another. That's the reason you're here. God's purpose is our purpose and your purpose. In every setting, in this city and around the world, God is on the move, uniting men and women to Christ. And in Christ, uniting them to one another. Okay, so think of it this way. Think of it this way. In your home, friend, what's happening? Kids are happening. Laundry's happening. Craziness is happening. Arguments are happening. You know what else is happening? God is on a mission, uniting all things in Christ. In your extended family, God is on a mission, uniting all things in Christ. In Bolivia, in Botswana, in Bangladesh, every country of the world, God is on a mission, uniting all things in Christ. It's, it's true in the material realm. It's true in the spiritual realm. It's true in heaven. It's, it's true on earth. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you are, what's going on. The point of all of it is to be united in Jesus. And here's where I want to encourage you. 
I want to encourage you. You might feel really frail. And you think, all right, Matthew, that's amazing. God's up to all that. Matthew, next Sunday, I am not going to be playing football. I'm going to be sitting on the couch, having a bud, watching the game because I'm, I can't do what all those people are doing. And we can start to think it's like that with God. You know, he's uniting all things in Christ. Preachers are so excited. Well, that's cool. I mean, not like I could help. You can't unite all things in Christ. But you know what? You get, as a Christian, we get as Christians the privilege of joining in what God is doing and telling people and showing people and helping people to realize what the Lord is up to. That's our job. That's our job. So you you might feel frail. Our church might look weak. But there's a divine power at work in us. Individually and corporately, and that divine power is accomplishing a divine purpose that cannot be thwarted. Can't be stopped. So friend, I want to challenge you and exhort you to not see the way the world sees. Don't don't evaluate the circumstances of your life the way the world does. You are part of God's story. Your family's part of God's story. Our, our church is part of God's story. This, this city is part of God's story. We're not, we're not here by chance. God has not abandoned us, checked out, or moved on. Okay, because what God purposes, God fulfills. And He's here right now, uniting all things in Christ. And so I want to implore you, if you have not been reconciled to God today... Be reconciled to God. Place your faith in Christ. Be united to Him. And if you have, if you're following Him and trusting Him and obeying Him, then then throw your life into the ministry of reconciliation. Remembering this. When you're teaching your kids what the gospel has to say about whining and complaining, you are engaging in the great end of all things. And the purpose of God is behind you. When you're explaining to your friend what the gospel has to say about their drug addiction, you are engaging in the great end of all things and the eternal purpose of God is behind you. When you're pleading with a brother to not leave his wife and see how God's love for him in Christ can can transform his marriage, you are engaging in the great end of all things and the eternal purpose and power of God God is behind you. Because God is up to this. Reconciling all things in Christ. If the band could join me on stage. I want to conclude with this. Remember church. That unity. Is not the ultimate goal. Christ is. It's very important. Why do I say this? Why do I end with this? Because we live in a world that in different ways is all too happy to fly the flag called unity. All about unity. But you know what, church? 
We don't worship unity. We worship Jesus. And what we're after is not unity enthroned and glorified for all to see. It's Christ enthroned and glorified for all to see. And it's our unity that serves that great end. And so we pray for unity and we plead for unity and we work for unity and we we throw our lives into the ministry of reconciliation, not, not to worship unity or to make unity great, but so that all might see Christ is great. And to that end, let's pray. Oh, Father, I very much feel like we have just scratched the surface of these brief words. Lord, I pray that you would infect our hearts and minds with a vision of the great end of all things. Lord, we want to be infected by that. We want, we want to be consumed by that. We want to perceive all that we are and all that's around us in light of what you were doing, what you were up to, restoring, reconciling, uniting all of it in Jesus. Lord, I pray right now that wherever we have seen our little stories, family story, our church's story, it's kicking around in the bushes off somewhere separate from you, that you would open our eyes. Grant us spiritual wisdom and insight to see how our story is part of yours. And renew our faith to throw our lives and our money and our time and our gifts and our abilities and our families and our stuff into what you are doing to see all things reconciled in Jesus. I pray, God, that wouldn't just be something we get excited about on Sunday, but would bring new perspective to all the little moments of life all throughout the next week for your glory, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.